podcast where we help prescribe a brand prescription to help surgeons grow their business of healthcare, and we help medical sales distributors establish financial freedom by becoming problem solvers and practice builders instead of sellers of product. To be fair, I let Debbie Millman know that I've got a brand crush on her. I've read all of her books. She was an inspiration for me in learning design and then becoming or thinking of myself as a creative. She's been named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA. She's an author, educator, strategist, and a host of one of the most popular podcasts entitled Design Matters. It's one of the first and the longest running podcasts about design and the intersection of branding. She's interviewed over 300 people. She's a culture provocateur. Her show has over 5 million downloads per year. Join me and welcome Debbie Millman. So, Debbie, describe what you do for a living to my Scottish grandparents, old school, in parentheses, Veen and Cordia. Hi, <laughs> Veen and Cordia. I <laughs> am a designer. I'm an author. I'm an educator at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and I run a graduate program in branding. And I host a podcast like your grandson. Mine is called Design Matters. That's great. I think that Veen and Cordia, first of all, they would invite you for dinner, Debbie, and they would let you know that you need to eat more. And then secondly, they would ask you more questions. So this is amazing. That's great. Sounds like my Jewish grandparents would have done. Yes, exactly. Well, I know that you've been named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA. Why do you prefer to wear beautiful black fashion? Well, I am going to steal an idea here from Barack Obama, although I was doing it before I knew about his decision-making criteria. Um, I, I, he says that he wears the same things every day, the same colors, because it's easier, less to decide uh, about every morning. And, and in many ways, I feel that way too. It's just easier Everything goes with everything, um, and it takes a lot of energy out of deciding what to wear in the morning. Um, but also, I think it's just cleaner. <laughs> yeah, I like to just I, I'm not a, a neat person, and I think it at least gives the illusion of being uh, neater and and more elegant. Although my brother will remind me uh, that just because you can't see the dirt, it doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> I love that. You know, Debbie, one of the photos that you have, um, I, I believe you've got like your feet propped up on a desk. And my wife happened to be walking by earlier today. She saw that photo. It's it's found on your website and through the Google images. And sweet Sandy looks at me and she goes, I already like her. I already <laughs> like her. So you got the approval of Veen, Cordia and sweet Sandy. So this is we're on a roll here. Wow. Thank and, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, a bunch of Southern people who who are going to give you virtual high fives right now. So that's Thank good. You. I'm feeling it. Yeah, you know, I know that you've got a, a podcast that I believe was 15 years ago that Design Matters that you started. Is that accurate? It was about 15 years ago that you started that. Yep. Yeah, and I know that it's been listed on one of the top 100 best podcast list, and including one of the best podcasts in the world by Business Insider. So I'd be curious, what are you learning about asking questions that helps them share their unique insight? Well, part of asking good questions is the ability to listen to the answers. Um, I find that a lot of people, when asking questions, really just wait for the person to finish talking before they begin talking again. Um, It really requires very deep observational listening skills so that you're paying attention to the person's answer and not just waiting to start talking again. Um, but I also find that a good interview is like a good game, a good game of pool where mm-hmm. you are trying to get the billiard balls in the different pockets um, over the course of the game. And you not only need to figure out how you're going to get a billiard ball in a pocket, but how to leave the rest of the billiard balls on the table so that you can best get them in future pockets, sort of like chess. And uh, so it's really an ability to be able to know as much about your guest as possible. So anywhere they take you, you can follow. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I follow you there and, and how that can be like chess or billiards. You know, your book, Look Both Ways. I loved it. I know the subtitle, uh, I believe, was called Illustrated Essays and at the Intersection of Life and Design. So I think it was a, a, an interesting choice of words. What made you curious to write that particular book? Well, this is a book that I'd always wanted to write. It was a bit of a fantasy. And I had, in 2005, taken a class with Milton Glaser, uh, the great, great graphic mm-hmm. designer, National Treasure, And I took a class with him. I took a summer intensive with him at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where I now teach. And in the class, we had to do an exercise at the very end of the class. The sort of climactic moment of the class was creating uh, what he called a five-year plan. So to envision our lives five years into the future, what did we want our lives to look at as if we could achieve whatever we wanted without fear or failure. And I made a list. I I wrote an essay as, as was uh, the directions. And then I made my own personal list. And on that list was a book of graphic stories. And in an effort to try to manifest that list, I sent a query to a publishing company who also at the time was publishing a graphic design magazine that I contributed to. And I didn't hear back. I did a sample essay and sent it via email. And I waited a few weeks. And then when I didn't hear back, I wrote the woman who I had written to again and said, by the way, did you ever get that essay that I sent you, the visual essay, any any thoughts on it? And she responded immediately and said she hadn't gotten it, which doesn't surprise me. It was a really big file that I'd sent her. And so I resent it and she thought it was intriguing. She didn't think it was the kind of book her editorial board 
was used to seeing or would likely approve, but she was willing to go to bat for me, which she did, a woman named Megan Patrick. And I heard back from her a few weeks later uh, with a very excited email that said, believe it or not, the editorial board has approved this proposal. And I wrote back and said it was a miracle. And she said, yes, Mm -hmm. it was, (laughs) because it was so unlikely that they would have. And so that really became uh, my first book of graphic essays. And after that, the the magazine uh, that Megan worked at, she was the editor-in-chief, was a magazine called How. And How was also owned by print. Um, or how was owned by a company called F and W Media, which was, which also owned print magazine, the oldest graphic design magazine, uh, in the world. And in an effort to sort of keep my chops, I had worked so hard on the book that over the year that I'd been doing these graphic essays, I hoped that my skills had gotten better and I didn't want to lose that. So I went to the editor of print magazine and said, can I contribute a visual essay every month to the website just in an effort to keep my, my skills as, as robust as I could. And he was like, sure, if you want to, (laughs) and for no money, I just wanted the deadline. I wanted the pressure of being able to do it and, wanted to be able to do my best by knowing it was going to be out there. And so I did that for three years. And at about the end of the third year, the publisher of print approached me and asked if I'd be interested in putting the best of those essays together in another book. And so that became self-portrait as your trader and look both ways has sold better than self-portrait, but I personally think self-portrait is much, much better. Yeah, you know, you were in Look Both Ways. I could almost find myself in some of your stories, whether it was talking about bubble bath or (laughs) biscuit mix. Speaking of Veen and Cordia, as you were describing some of those iconic brands and images and how they shaped uh, your life and your sense of design, it brings me back to my childhood. My grandparents had a 500-acre farm. And I remember as a kid, my first exposure to design was these packages of seeds Mm. and seeds for different, you know, uh, vegetables or fruit. And they were, Debbie, they were beautiful. They were iconically designed. If if you've seen any of those. Seed packaging is simply stunning. If done, it's just absolutely perfect. Yeah, so here's a 500-acre farm in the middle of nowhere, Cave Springs, Arkansas. Scottish hooligan grandparents with beautiful – they would hang them up in the barn. So it was almost like a palette or a grid square of beautiful design with great calligraphy, et cetera. So that's how I associated myself when you were describing that. So what's your definition of branding, and how has it changed or evolved over the years? Um, well, it's changed quite a lot. Uh, I've spent most of my career pursuing a definition of branding. In fact, another one of my books that's titled Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits includes my asking that question to 20 of the world's leading thinkers in business and branding. And not surprisingly, I got probably close to 20 different answers, <laughs> some more similar than others, but 
also some very different. Um, this is something I've given a great deal of thought about, and I'll share what I've created or, or developed in, in the time that I've been thinking about it. Um, branding is a process of meaning manufacture. It is an ability to imbue symbols, objects, ideas, sometimes people with meaning that may or may not be organic. Um, brands don't breathe, generally speaking. Um, and I have issues about people being brands and we can talk about that later, although they mm-hmm. try, um, they're, they're not, um, born on trees or in the ground, they're manufactured. They're manufactured by people in an effort to represent something. And they are developed by creating consensus around that meaning. So we will be able to design something, we'll create something, we will then create a construct around that thing. And then we create consensus around that meaning and that creates a brand. A brand mm. is the result of a journey of meaning manufacture. A brand doesn't just pop out. A brand is developed and then grown through deliberate differentiation from other brands. Yeah, that's very helpful for our listeners. You know, the book title, Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits, I'm curious about the other noble pursuits component of that. What does that mean to you? as an expression of the title? Well, I think most people consider branding to be a tool of capitalism and there's no question that it is. However, I believe that our designation or our manufacturing of meaning in religious symbols, in social movements, also are brands. And so whether we use that discipline to further capitalism or to further religion or to further a social movement, the, the activity is exactly the same. So there are opportunities to use the tenets of branding for really positive, positive social change. And it's really up to the maker to decide whether we want to use it strictly for capitalism or to signify and communicate change, growth, development, opportunity, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Even the you people know- that are fundamentally against branding, you know, you have lots of organizations that are really opposed to the tenets of branding. The real irony in, in, those groups is that they use the tenants of branding to communicate yes. with their organizations. They have logos, they have websites. Uh, those are all tools of branding. Um, if you go to the Adbusters website, which is one of the most vocal uh, proponents of anti-branding uh, belief, they they're selling a pair of branded Adbusters branded sneakers to fundraise. So, so it's really not the activity that. Um, is is different. It's how we use the activity. Yes. And Debbie, many of them are listening to us right now. They may have MD at the end of their name, 
but many of them uh, will resonate with us. And, you know, you said something earlier about like movements and movements in design. I know that Brand Bible, which was, you know, one of your, your six and counting books, I believe that's accurate. Um, it, what I like in the language and structure is it, it seems to take these brand design fundamentals. I think this is going to resonate with our surgeon audience. And it looks at these influences of modern design, goes back through time. It's like an anatomical overview almost. And I, I think you use the language of examining brand treatments and movements and design. You know, that description almost sounds clinical. And it's definitely going to resonate with our medical technology and our surgeon audience. In your opinion, what kind of historical overview of how brands have developed through the 20th century teach us today? Well, it teaches us. It, 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 I would say that it goes back before the 20th century. I mean, we started mark making on the caves of Lascaux. Ten thousands of tens of thousands of years ago, thirty-two thousand years ago, we started to uh, mark our reality on the cave walls of Lascaux, and I don't think it's any coincidence that we've gone from documenting our reality on cave walls to documenting our reality on Facebook walls. We mm-hmm. our behavior is very, very much the same. Um, we imbue meaning in something and then share that in an effort to create um, a mutuality of sorts. And in terms of the development, whether it be uh, the cave walls of Lascaux, whether it be religious symbols, whether it be um, avatars, whether it be brands and supermarkets, all of these marks are used to create meaning for others to be able to comprehend. Um, In terms of how it's different What I can tell you is that for most of our existence, using these tools and creating these marks, most of that was what I consider to be bottom-up branding. So we're looking at uh, a situation where people were creating marks for other people. So people in the caves of Lascaux were making marks for other people. It was a, a, a version of storytelling and documenting reality and preserving stories. Um, preserving behavior, preserving activity. Um, And for the most part, this behavior was created by people for people without really any profit or any financial acumen embedded in it or without any profit and loss statements. For most of our time uh, on this planet engaging in this behavior, it's really only in the 19th, 18th and 19th century that we started to create marks in an effort to create familiarity in a marketplace that would allow us to profit from the products that we needed to survive, whether it be food, whether it be shelter, whether it be clothing, whether it be transportation, um, in an effort to create familiarity, to create an expectation of an experience, and then, of course, to make money. And we saw at the end of the 19th century how much money could be made from this type of behavior. And that's when we started to see the advent of the Trademarks Registration Act. That's when we saw 
really what I would call the gold rush of, of modern branding, where it went from being a bottom up behavior. So creating marks and symbols for people, by people for the sole purpose of communication and connection to uh, creating marks and symbols for profit. And it's pretty much continued that way for about 150, 160 years. It's only in recent times in say the last 10 years or so that, and, and so what, when it was in, in owned by the corporate realm, what I call that is top down branding when it's brands that are created by people for people, but for the purpose of shareholder value and, and profit. Um, what we've seen in the last 10 years is a return to that bottom-up branding, where because of technology, the tools of branding can be easily shared. The tools of branding are no longer expensive or as expensive as they once were. And so now we're seeing people creating marks and symbols to signify social change, to signify the way they believe the world should be uh, engaged with and in a way for people to signal that they want social equality and justice. Mm-hmm. And so you see yeah, Black Lives Matter, you see Me Too, you see, and, and you started to see this a little bit at the beginning of the AIDS crisis with the red ribbon and it's grown and grown and grown. And now we have marks and symbols for every major social movement. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. You know, I highly recommend that our listening audience go to Skillshare and take your visual storytelling course. I think it's something that the surgeons that are listening to us now can learn about storytelling. And so what I would ask you is, is what is it that you could share with a doctor today that they can think about that may not be obvious as it relates to storytelling, that they can incorporate into their practice and, you know, helping to serve their patients? That's a really big question. <laughs> can, you, can you ask it again? Yeah, I'll ask it in a different way. Um, doctors are telling stories, factual, to their patients all the time. They just don't consider themselves storytellers. And so in your Skillshare course, Visual Storytelling, I think there's something that doctors can learn about the principles of visual storytelling that you share, uh, whether that's anatomical models or whether that's just the fundamentals of telling a story to a patient. So instead of just having MD at the end of their name, as a practitioner, how do they think through storytelling, whether that relates to their marketing or whether that relates to how they illustrate their, you know, unique positioning as a particular type of surgeon? So I think that in terms of the way that doctors communicate and the way that they share stories and share reality, my recommendation would be to in the same way that I look both ways in my book in terms of the visual and the verbal I would tell stories two ways. I would tell a very clinical story on the one hand. This is what you have. This is what you're going to experience. This is what the odds are of you beating this disease. This is what you need to do to recover and so forth. Very, very specific, very tangible. But then I think that what I've missed, whether it be in my own 
doctor care or witnessing others care is how are you going to feel? How Mm. are you going to manage? What is this experience potentially going to be like for you? You asked me a question at the very beginning of the podcast. You said, how would I describe what I do to your grandparents? How could a doctor describe either an illness, a prognosis, a diagnosis, a future scenario in a way that is universally understood by anyone at any intellectual capacity? So much of what we're told is clinical. So much of what we're told is diagnostic. How about the emotional side? What can I, how do I, how do I, how am I going to manage through this emotionally? That would be, I think, so helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. That's going to be something that's really going to resonate with our listening audience. You know, I view you as a catalyst, as a curator, and even as a collaborator when you get these top kind of branding change agents together, whether that's in the form of a book or whether that's just a collaborative process. What have you learned about getting all these creative people together, engaging with them, you know, some of the top designers and brand influencers to join you on your podcast, to be in your books or to, you know, join you in projects? Well, everybody has an opinion. (laughs) Everybody has a point of view. Um, You know, in terms of working with clients, branding is not a solo sport like tennis. It's more like basketball, where no matter how good you are, a big part of your role is to make your other teammates look better. You know, part of Michael Jordan's great talent wasn't just how good he was, but how good he made Scottie Pippen. So you kind of have the same kind of scenario in branding where you can't do it on your own. You have to do it with, with a group of people. So there are people that do market research. There are people that are designers. There are people that are strategists. There are people that do implementation. So, so you all have to work in tandem. Um, and so one of the things that I think you, you have to be able to do is collaborate. And that's not a skill that's often taught. And I'm not even sure that that's something that doctors are taught. But uh, the the way to collaborate is the only way, I think, to really create meaningful change at scale. So, so that's the first thing. In terms of what I've learned from the individual interviews that I've um, engaged in is that really nobody knows for sure what they're doing. And in as much as uh, they might be some of the greatest practitioners in the world, greatest designers, greatest writers, greatest, greatest musicians, you know, they're greatest for doing something in the past and there still needs to be something that they continue to do in the future that resonates. And very few people really feel uh, that sure that they're going to do it again. And, and I'm assuming that doctors have to feel the same way in terms of um, operating, um, on, on any kind of patient or treating a patient, are they going to make it? Am I going to be able to help them? Am I going to be able to cure them? And that unknown, I think, keeps people very, very motivated to keep doing their best work. Um, and then, you know, there's so many designers, and I don't know if this is the, quite the same dynamic in the, in the medical community, but so many creative people, um, want to make it 
and, and, and get to a point where, you know, they're well known or they're very successful. And I interviewed David Lee Roth. Um, and I'm sure some of your, your listeners, mm-hmm. because he was the lead singer of Van Halen. Um, and back in the 1980s, Van Halen was one of the most, if not the most, uh, popular rock band in the world. And I saw Valerie Bertinelli, um, sitting one row in front of me, my very first concert ever was Van Halen and I'm dating myself 38 special. So I'm a child of the eighties here, Debbie. So I'm, it, I parted my hair in the middle. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was the right thing to do. And uh, Van, yes, Van Halen was my band. So you're speaking my language. Uh, well, I interviewed David and he, I asked him, what did it feel like? to be the biggest rock star in the world in the eighties. And he paused and he was very thoughtful. One of the most profound things I've ever heard anybody say. And he said, well, you kind of have to be careful in those moments because when you reach the top of the mountain, it's always cold. You're usually alone and there's really only one direction to go in. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really quite profound and, Part of what I've tried to do in my career, because it has taken me longer to get to the top of the mountain, and I don't even know that I want to be on the top of the mountain. I just want to be doing the best possible work I can and peak maybe the day before I die. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love that. That's, that's so great. There's this speed to success that people are are really obsessed with. And I don't know if it's quite the same in the medical community, but certainly in the creative community, there is this sense of our work needing to be shared and admired and respected. And while I do think that that's something that helps us feel like we're making meaning, and again, it goes back to, to making meaning, um, I do think that um, being able to pace yourself in a career is really important. As we transition into our final questions, what activity could you do all day long and never get bored. Draw. <laughs> I love to illustrate. I'm, I'm, I love to make things. I really am happiest when I'm making something. It could be a lesson plan. It could be a podcast. It could be a meal. It could be um, any type of creative endeavor. I am happiest when I'm making something, and I draw and illustrate all the time. And Well, maybe not quite all the time, but I could if I, if I was allowed to. What is, I love to cook. I've got an agency called Feed that's an extension from my culinary school experience. What's the vegetable that you prepare for people who come to your house and say that they hate vegetables? Well, I'm one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big vegetable person. And, And I have lots of arguments with people because my vegetable of choice is not really considered a vegetable and that is a potato. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Even though it the grows safe, the safety of the potato. I, I'm married to, to uh, one of those lovely people uh, that she is convinced that potatoes is on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the top of the vegetable food chain. So Absolutely, yes. As do I. Um, there's yes. really very few vegetables that I really like. I like cucumbers. I like bok choy. I do like potatoes. Um, I also like corn, but that's also, I guess, a starch. Um, 
I would have to concur with the person that doesn't like vegetables and, and then go and get some potato chips. I love, I love the mindset there. What's the axiom by which you live your life? If not now, when? Mm. Very good. I know you're in L.A. Yes, lot I- to do. Yes, lot to do in L.A. I'm a San Diego boy. Uh, our kids were raised exactly. in San Diego, so I know that area quite well. What's the first decadent guilty pleasure that you're going to treat yourself to as soon as we get the official all clear in this current context of post-COVID or COVID, however you define it? A Broadway show. First row. Yes. <laughs> yes. We had, my wife and I had tickets to Hamilton and obviously that was derailed. And then there's some controversy now around, you know, is Hamilton going to be at movie theaters, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, your old stomping grounds of New York City, um, Sweet Sandy and I were loading up, going to the Big Apple, big night on the town, COVID hit, that all stops. So I'm ready as well. Yep, absolutely. I think that Hamilton is going to be on Disney Plus, and I think it's going to be out pretty soon. They they moved the launch date up, I think, about a year uh, which makes sense given that In the Heights was postponed for a year. The other the other play that Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, wrote. Yes. My last question, and sure. you've been so gracious with your time, is what's a question that you're rarely asked, but you wish that somebody would have asked it as it relates to a podcast like this? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Hmm. Well, the one question that I can think of that only one person in all the interviews that I've not that, that I've conducted, but that I've participated in. So questions that people have asked me was in Tim Ferriss's podcast, um, wherein he asked me why working for the joyful heart foundation, uh, helped make my life make sense which is Mm. a question I wasn't expecting to get, despite the fact that that is what I have written as my, as part of my Q and a, as the board chair of the joyful heart foundation, which is a foundation that Mariska Hargitay started. Uh, She's the star of law and order SVU. And after she started working on the show, which is about uh, victims of sexual assault, uh, she started getting quite a lot of correspondence from viewers who were moved by what she was doing on television and thanking her for bringing these topics, these really difficult topics to more of a cultural conversation. And I was invited about 10 years ago or so to partner with Joyful Heart in an effort to create a new logo and um effort called No More, which was a group that various organizations, all trying to eradicate sexual violence, had participated in to, again, try to bring these subjects to a broader cultural consideration. And then after that, I started working with Mariska more personally, and now I'm the chair of the board of directors of her organization. 
That is an interesting question and an and so, even more interesting response. Yeah. So, so Tim was the first person that took the time to research me to such a degree that he read my bio on the Joyful Heart Foundation website, wherein I say this work helps me make my life make sense. And he was like, why? And so I had in that moment to make a decision, a big life decision. It was somewhat ambiguous on the Joyful Heart website, but for anybody that knows me personally, they know that my working in branding for my whole career and now shifting to do work for organizations that I believe need to have more visual and cultural power through their branding in, in the world today um, is, is happening with the current work that I'm doing. And that's because of my own experience having um, been the victim of sexual violence as I was growing up. And so it was the first time that I actually spoke about that. And that had a really profound, um, that was a really profound moment and it had a really profound impact on my life and being more open about my own experiences, which I think that just pays it forward in culture with other people feeling that they are safer in talking about their experiences. And then the more that we talk about these things, the less likely they are to stay hidden in the darkness. Yeah, I really value what you just said there. That's so important that that having a voice and then shaping that into a distinct point of view that other people can find themselves within your own story and your own journey. And just in closing, um, and I don't mean this to sound cheesy or anything, but you know, I've read your books and I've seen your interviews and in my process of coming from the healthcare field and kind of always knowing that I had some design interest and aptitude and, and certainly some creative skills and how that could be applied in a healthcare setting. You are a person that has made a difference to me and you may not realize it because we have perhaps nothing by way of geographical background, et cetera, other than the fact that you and I are the two best dressed in black people that we know of. <laughs> and we're quite humble about it, Debbie, that's for sure. But yeah, I just want to let you know that you've been an, uh, an impact on me. And I haven't said that with any of my other guests uh, so far. So I thank you for having a, a, a clear and distinct voice, having a sense of style that allows someone who now lives in Arkansas and works with brain surgeons and spine surgeons. And, you know, I'm now able to, in part, thanks to you and the experiences from other people, let surgeons know who are literally brain surgeons that, hey, there's an opportunity how design creativity can compliantly be communicated and channeled into serving and caring for patients. So I want to say thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Matthew. It's been a real honor to talk with you and thank you for these really great questions. Thank you, Debbie.